Good morning, everybody. Well, Pastor Kirk is up in Old Town today, so I get to be here. I'm glad I can be with you today. If you're new to the Rock Church, let me tell you that we are in a sermon series. It's, uh, we're week four in uh, 1 Corinthians. We're calling it Issues and Answers. And if you've missed any of these talks, you can go online. You can watch these on video if you want to catch up. This morning I've got quite a bit of ground to cover, all of chapter 5 and half of chapter 6. So I don't have time to dilly-dally, I'm going to jump right in. Chapter 5, verse 1, okay, let's read it. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that does not occur even among the pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put your put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And I've already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord." Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may have a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth." Paul was dealing with what for him was a recurring problem. No matter where Paul went in the Roman Empire, the heathen did not know the meaning of chastity. They took their pleasures when and where they wanted to. It was very difficult for the Christian church to escape that infection. The church was like a little island surrounded by a sea of paganism. The problem was that the people inside the church had only recently climbed out of that sea of paganism. They had no background in morality. They had no foundation of what is right and wrong. For countless generations, they had practiced hedonism. If it feels good, do it. So Paul is confronted with the need to bring Christian teaching and morality to people who had no background in it at all. And the situation he tackles in these first verses is absolutely scandalous. A man has formed an illicit sexual relationship with his own stepmother. Now, Paul doesn't deal with the woman in this passage, so I assume that she is outside of the church, still a pagan. What is shocking to Paul is not just the sin, which is disgusting. It's the attitude of the church toward the sin. They had completely accepted this situation and done nothing about it. Where they should have been scandalized and grief-stricken, their attitude was, que sera, sera, what will be, will be. Paul says to them, you should have been filled with grief. And the word that he uses here, the Greek word is pentine, which is used for mourning for the dead. He says, you should have been grief-stricken as if you had lost a loved one because you're allowing this to go on inside the church. You should have been shocked, you should have been grief-stricken, you should have been horrified, but you haven't even noticed. Let me tell you something. Our own culture is moving more and more, closer and closer to the culture of the Corinthians. 
The attitude of our society is pushing for anything goes, baby. If you want to do it, you do it. Nobody should have the right to tell you what you should be doing. That's where we're headed. Get this now. This is important. An easygoing attitude towards sin is always dangerous for that society. An easy attitude, easygoing attitude towards sin is always dangerous for that society. It's been said that our security against sin lies in our being shocked at it. But frankly, sin doesn't shock us anymore, does it? We've become hardened to sin. We see it everywhere, even on the news. But we see it on TV shows. We see it in TV commercials. I want to remind us of something. The Bible warns us that we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. In other words, Satan himself is behind all of this stuff. And he has a plan to desensitize us. His goal is to get us to the place where we don't care, where we just say, whatever, can't do anything about it anyway, so whatever. And when we get to that place where we don't care, he has won. He doesn't need to do anything else. The situation in Corinth was that the church had become so desensitized to sin that they just didn't care that this man was sleeping with his mother-in-law. Paul cares. Paul is shocked. And his remedy is to do what? is to excommunicate this man from the church and to hand him over to Satan, as he puts it, so that his sinful nature might be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of judgment. What Paul is talking about here is church discipline. Not discipline for the sake of punishment, rather to awaken the man's conscience so that he can come to repentance. Remember this. Church discipline is not for breaking a person. It's for making a person. Making him aware of his sin. Making him understand his folly. Making him turn back to God. In the next couple of sentences, Paul takes this a step further by offering some very practical advice. And he does this by giving us a word picture that every one of us can relate to. It's a picture that comes straight out of the kitchen. Everybody has a kitchen. Everybody loves fresh baked bread. He says, when you're making bread, you put a little yeast in it. And that yeast works through the whole lump of dough. And once you put the yeast in there, you can't get it back out again. You say, oh, I changed my mind. I don't want to make bread. I want to make crackers. I don't want it to rise. I want it to stay flat. Once the yeast is in the dough, you can't stop the process. It's going to rise. Paul says, listen. If sin gets into the church and you will do nothing about it, then the whole church will become corrupted. So here's an important principle. Discipline must sometimes be exercised for the sake of the church. To shut our eyes to blatant sin is not the kind thing to do. It is damaging. For example, let's say that someone has gangrene in their toes. What do you have to do? You all know this. Some of you know people like this. What do you have to do? You have to cut off the toes. You don't want to cut off the toes. Nobody wants to lose their toes, but you cut off the toes to save their body because if you don't, the poison will work its way into the foot, up the leg, 
into the body, and what will happen? The poison will kill that person. There are times, as difficult, as painful as it will be, discipline must be carried out. Now, discipline must never be carried out for the satisfaction of those who give it. Rather, it's always for the mending of the person who has sinned and for the sake of the church. Those two things. Discipline must never be vengeful. It must always be curative and prophylactic. Paul's warning in these first eight verses is, don't be complacent about sin. That takes us through point one. Let's go to point number two. I'm going to call this section inside and out, or inside or outside. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. Let's read it. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. Now, what business is it of mine, he says, to judge those outside the church? Not my business to judge those outside the church. But are you not to judge those who are inside the church? God will judge those outside. Don't worry about them. But expel the wicked man from among you inside the church. As Jay pointed out last week, Paul had written a previous letter to the Corinthian church, which has been lost to us. In that letter, he had urged them not to associate with sexually immoral people. Let me clarify this. He was talking about the church. He was talking about keeping the church pure. He was not talking about people in general. He was not suggesting that Christians have to withdraw from the world like hermits or like monks living on a mountaintop monastery. No. On the contrary, Paul knew very well that Christianity had to be lived out in this world. This is a continuation of his thoughts from the first eight verses. He's talking about keeping the church pure. And he's saying to do that, there must be some form of discipline, some some form of judgment within the church. So in verses 12 and 13, it makes it clear that he's not talking about judging those outside the church. He's saying, take care of people inside the church. It's your job to take care of what goes on inside the church. You, the church, you must have the courage to judge among yourselves and expel the wicked from among you. Now, I have to be honest, and I say that not very many people want the job of handing out church discipline. I know pastors don't want that job. And I know you don't want that job. In fact, if anybody wants that job, you have to ask yourself a question. Is something wrong with that person? Do they have a spirit of judgment, or are they critical? What what is their problem? Because we don't want that job. Nonetheless, Christian leadership within the church must be ready to face sin, call it for what it is, and deal with it. So Paul says in verse 11, if within the church there show up sexually immoral people, greedy people, idolatrous people, slanderers, drunkards, swindlers, I tell you, do not even eat with those people. Expel them from the church. (coughs) Excuse me, I have a cold. I've got a cough drop right here. 
In other words, he says, if the gospel is being clearly preached, if the gospel is being clearly preached, I want to stop and pause just for a second right here. I want to say this. I have never heard Pastor Kirk back down from preaching the truth of the gospel. He preaches the whole word of God. If it hurts, it hurts. But he doesn't water it down. And you need to respect him for that. And you need to pray for him. Because there is always pressure to preach what is convenient. To preach what people want to hear. To preach what is politically correct. Pastor Kirk preaches the truth. The whole counsel of God. He preaches it with love. He preaches it without harshness. He'll tell you you're a sinner with a smile on his face. You know him. But he preaches it straight. Paul says, if you are preaching the gospel and someone within the church, someone who calls himself a Christian is purposely ignoring the word of God, flaunting his sin, there's but one course of action to take and that is to expel the wicked man from among you. That's what he says in verse 13. That's tough love, isn't it? So what do we learn this morning? We learned that the Corinthians were complacent about sin. Paul warned them they should have been filled with grief over the sin that was among them, as if they were mourning for the dead. And then he says, secondly, our attitude toward those who are inside the church should be different than our attitude towards those who are outside the church. God is going to deal with the sinners who are outside the church. You don't need to worry about them. But he's given us the responsibility to deal with sin that is inside the church. Move on to point number three, verses one through eight of chapter six. The subject is Christians suing Christians in court. He says this, if any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you're to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to your shame. Is it possible there is no one among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead... One brother goes to court against another, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. In these verses, Paul is dealing with a problem that especially affected the Greeks. The Jews didn't have a problem with this. You know why? Because it was against their law. It was against God's law to take a, brother, take a fellow Jew to court. So you didn't see ever Jewish people taking people to a court. They always dealt with it more as in a family style, either taking it before the elders in the village or before the elders of the synagogue, but never in a court of law. Okay? It was blasphemy to go to court for a Jewish person. But with the Greeks something totally different. The Greeks loved going to court. It was one of their greatest entertainments. 
as you might go to a movie, they'd go to court. And they loved being on juries. They had hundreds of people on a jury because they all just loved being in the court. They loved the arguments. They loved the debates. They loved the spectacle. They loved the circus atmosphere. By the way, as I prepared this message and watched what was going on in our Congress as they prepared the impeachment process, I had to wonder, I wonder if some of those guys have a little Greek heritage in them. Because they seem to love the arguments and the debates and the spectacle of the court. I'm just saying, okay? Well, getting back to the Corinthians, what do you think happened when these Greeks who loved going to court got saved? Now they're in the church. They've started going to church. What do you suppose happened? They started taking their brothers and sisters to court. Because that's, that's, that's how you live in Greek culture. Paul was shocked by their behavior. Mostly because he was Jewish. And just couldn't imagine how they could do this. But from the Christian perspective alone, he says, listen to me. How do you think you can find justice among the unjust? And then he points out, listen, one day you're all going to judge angels. Did you know that, by the way? He says, you're going to judge angels one day, and you can't even sort things out among yourselves? Don't be so foolish. Choose wise men from among you and settle these things. And taking it a step further, he says, listen, if you have even the slightest tinge of Christian love in your heart, it would be better to suffer insult and injury and loss than to go to court and put those things on your Christian brother. Let's remember something. These things are written not just to the Corinthians. This is God's Word. This is Scripture. Inspired by God, Paul wrote this, and God knew that we would be reading this today, 2,000 years later. So this applies to us. This is written also to us. Within the church, we should not find the need to take someone to court. If we love Christ, we should be able to find a solution to our differences. If we can't do that, it reveals the hardness of our hearts. That's what God says. Finally, we come to our last point. It's a quote from Paul, verse 11, where he says, some of you were once like that. Let's read it. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, or drunkards, or slanderers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In these verses, Paul breaks out into a catalog of sins that's a grief, a, a grim commentary on the debauched civilization of the Corinthians. I've got to be honest with you, some of these things are not pleasant to talk about. I'd rather not be talking about them. But we must talk about them if we're to understand the environment of the early church. And more than that, when we do a little self-examination of our own culture, we realize human nature hasn't changed very much in all these years. Paul begins with a straightforward question. He says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. 
That's a telling statement right there, isn't it? Because we are always trying to fool ourselves. We are always trying to convince ourselves that where we're cutting corners, or cheating, or lying, or breaking the law, we're not hurting anybody. We always tell ourselves that. We're not hurting anybody. Everybody does it. Come on. Everybody does it. Or, well, you know what? That's a stupid law anyway. It shouldn't even be a law. So I don't, I'm not going to pay attention to that. We have lots of excuses for our sin, just as the devil gave lots of excuses to Eve before she chose to sin. We can always find excuses for our sins, but it doesn't change the fact that God calls these things sin. The list that is given here is a controversial list today. It hasn't always been controversial. In fact, during my lifetime, everything has changed. When I was a kid, there was no controversy about this list. Everybody knew what sin was. Today, well, we're well on our way to convincing ourselves that there's no such thing as sin. Whatever you want to do is fine. Who should be judging you anyway? Those self-righteous moralists, who do they think they are? So frankly, I'm glad the list is here. Otherwise, you know what I think we'd end up with? Some wishy-washy, politically correct suggestions on how we might all get along better. God puts this in black and white. Why? So we can know what sin is. So we can know. Not guess. Not hope. Not wonder. We can know what sin is. You know what? God is not interested in political correctness. God deals with absolutes. Absolute truth. Absolute right and wrong. Absolute sacrifice of His Son. Absolute forgiveness. Absolute freedom. Personally, I like that. I like to know what the boundaries are. I like to know when I've stepped out of bounds so I can get back in. That's a good thing. Look at the list. It begins with sexual sin. Those who indulge in sexual sin. We've already pointed out that the Corinthian society had no conscience when it came to sexual sin. Whatever they felt like doing, they did. Even their religion led them deeper into sexual perversion. The famous temple to Aphrodite was not, nothing more than a glorified brothel with male and female prostitutes serving men, women, homosexuals, everything. That was their religion. Through Paul, God warns us, you want to practice sexual sin? Fine. But don't expect a place in heaven. He says you will not inherit the kingdom of God. What's next in the list? Idolatry. Idolatry is a grim example of what happens when we try to make religion easier. An idol did not begin by being an idol. It began by being a symbol of a god. Its function was to make the worship of the god easier by providing some object in which its presence was localized. But it didn't take very long for men to begin worshiping the idol instead of the god. Let me say this. Frankly, I don't see a lot of idol worship in our society. 
I don't see people worshiping idols. I know you can go overseas. You can go to some cultures. You will see people worshiping idols. I know that. But I do have to wonder. And for those of you who have a Catholic background, maybe you can talk to me afterwards and explain this to me because I don't understand it. What is it with the statues of Mary? Are people praying to those statues? I don't know. I'm not Catholic. But are they praying to the statues or is it just reminding them to pray to God? I don't know. What's with the statues of Buddha? I went to a doctor's office some time ago and there's a statue of Buddha right there in the lobby. You know, Do people pray to those statues? I don't know. What's with the prayer beads that hang off the mirror in the car? Is it some sort of talisman? Is it some sort of protection? Are people putting their hope in something like that instead of putting their hope and prayers directly to God? I don't know. But I do know this. Idol worship in any form, that is, prioritizing anyone or anything above God is condemned by God. He says, don't do it. Don't let anything get in the way of direct communication between you and me. You don't pray to an idol. You don't pray to anybody else. You pray to God. Otherwise, it's idolatry. Next on the list is adultery. And this one we do see a lot of in our society. It's rampant. The attitude today is, are you bored with your spouse? Then go have a little fling with somebody else. In fact, there are knuckleheads writing books telling you, go ahead and have an an affair. It'll spice up your marriage. Baloney. That is a lie of Satan. That will destroy your marriage. But let me add a little hard truth here when it comes to adultery. We don't want to talk about it. But Jesus brought the word divorce into the subject of adultery. I didn't do it. God brought the subject. Jesus brought the subject of divorce into adultery. What we're seeing today, even in the church, is the notion that I deserve to be happy. And if my spouse isn't making me happy, I have the right to get a divorce and find somebody else. Let me set the record straight for us. No, you don't. No, you don't. I'm amazed today to see how many young people get married, and this has happened in my own ministry. And then within a year or two after getting married, they're coming back and they're talking about divorce. Listen to me. Every marriage has its rough spots. Do you hear me? Every marriage. Whether you've been married six months or you've been married 50 years. Every marriage has its rough spots. The rough spots come and go like when you take a trip across country. You're going to go through valleys. You're going to go over mountains. And when you're married, you will go through valleys. It's not all mountaintop experiences. You're going to come to rough spots in your marriage. But let me tell you something. When you come to a rough spot, it is no excuse for bailing on your marriage. You made vows to one another. You made vows before God that you would work on your marriage for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. Do we think that God was not listening when we made those vows in front of Him? Do we think that it is so easy to lie to God? Here's what God says about divorce. Read it with me. Malachi chapter 2. He says, you cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I'll tell you why. 
because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young. But you have been unfaithful to her, though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit, you are His. And what does He want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart. Remain faithful, remain loyal to the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart and do not be unfaithful to your wife. And let's just make sure this is clear, ladies. God is not just talking to men. He's talking to you too. You, you can't find any excuses. I don't know if you're aware of it, but Jesus also talked about divorce. Matthew chapter 19, verses 8 and 9, he says this. He says, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession for your hard hearts. But it was not what God originally intended. And I'll tell you this. Whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. Jesus added to this in Luke chapter 16, verse 18. He says, A man who divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery. And anyone who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. You know something? When I started this message... I didn't know I was going to end up right here, I'll tell you. I was just given a passage of Scripture. We're going through a series. Pastor Kirk, who's going to be away, says, will you take this passage? I said, yes. Should have looked at it before I said yes. (laughs) You know what I really thought? I thought the hard part of this message was going to be what comes after these verses. Some of the other stuff that I haven't even gotten to yet. But I got to tell you, God has put it on my heart. stop right here and to tell you that it breaks his heart to see how easily we slip into and out of marriages. Frankly, I don't want to be talking about this today because it's hard to talk about this without coming across as being judgmental. I have no interest in judging any of you. That is not my job here today. It's not my intention to tell you that if you've been divorced and remarried that there's no place in heaven for you. I'm not saying that at all. I know that God is just and loving and forgiving. One sin is like another sin. God can forgive any sin. Let's make that clear. My focus is not on what we've done in the past. Rather, it's on what we will do in the future. My concern is that we know what God says about these things so that we can correct our course if we're off track. My wish today is to help every one of us who are married because I know this. Sooner or later, you're going to come to a rough spot in your marriage. And when you come to a rough spot, I guarantee sooner or later that word divorce is going to pop into your head. You may be in one of those rough spots right now. You may be entertaining the idea of divorce right now. And if that is the case, listen to me very carefully. I don't know what has brought you to this point. Could be one of all kinds of things. Some of which 
you may have legitimate concerns and complaints. I am simply here to tell you today that unless you have been abused by your mate or abandoned by your mate or cheated on by your mate, then God says you have no right to be considering a divorce. Your decision to marry means that you must work at your marriage and you must make your marriage work. Let me give you some very practical advice. If you're frustrated with your marriage and you don't know what to do next, will you you at least do this? Come talk to one of the pastors. And if we don't know how to help you, and perhaps we won't, we can at least recommend some good professional marriage counselors to work with you who can help you. Let me close this way. My wife and I have been married since 1978. Some of you are thinking, what, how many years is that? It's 41 years. In 41 years, I'm telling you, we have had our ups and downs. We have had our rough spots. And we have been to see counselors more than once when we needed some help through rough spots. But here's why we're still together. We have been committed to making our marriage work no matter what. And I am glad that we're together. Glad because our lives are so much better together. Glad because our lives are so much richer for having worked things out. Glad for other people that we can now minister to who are going through their rough spots. I'm glad for our sakes. I'm glad for our children's sakes. I'm glad for our grandchildren's sakes. And let me add this. I'm glad for the sake of my Heavenly Father because I know that it gives Him pleasure that we have honored our vows and stuck it out. I hope and pray the same for you today. Would you bow your heads with me? we've been talking about a lot of hard stuff here today but it occurs to me there may be someone here today and you're going through some stuff and you have no one to turn to because you've never asked God to be part of your life so when you're going through rough spots or challenges or difficulties you've got nobody to turn to and I'm here to tell you today that God is there and God wants to help you. God wants to listen to you. He wants you to turn to Him. He wants you to give your life over to Him. Maybe you've been wanting to do that. Maybe you didn't know that when you walked in, but right now God is speaking to your heart. He's saying, would you come to me? I have your answers. I have help for you. Would you give your life to me? If you'd like to do that, I'd like to lead you in a prayer right now to help you understand how you can pray to God and invite him into your life. If that's what you'd like to do, would you pray this prayer with me right now? Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, I confess to you that I am a sinner. I know that. Would you forgive me for my sins? Would you cleanse my heart? Would you come into my life? Make me a new person. 
Help me to begin living for you from this day forward. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.